Hey, this is Wolf Hoffman from Accept, and I want you to focus on metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another week of Focus on Metal. Before we get into everything this week, I just want to say that if you haven't gone and picked up your own copy of uh, Metal Rock Films' latest uh, documentary, The Flying V Doc, I urge you to do that, especially if you're really into Flying Vs. Great stuff there. Lots of good artists on there. Michael Shanker, guys from Merciful Fate, King Diamond. Of course, you've got uh, Matthias Jabs from Scorps is on there. Good stuff, all talking about the Flying V. So, uh, you know, you can either go pick up your own copy wherever you get DVDs, or it's also streaming on uh, some of the streaming services as well. So I definitely would urge you to go out and get yourself a copy of that one. It is really, really good, and it also will tide you over until our buddy Bob Nelbandian releases his uh, his next metal documentary masterpiece, which we should be seeing uh, fairly soon. All right, so with the uh, plugs about things we care about out of the way, then uh, let's get on to this week's show. So this week we have on, once again, industry insider Dean Budnick. It's kind of weird for me to say once again because, uh, you know, we had him on as part of our special edition series in the spring. But uh, that actually, that interview that we aired on that was actually the second time we talked to Dean this time, we're actually going to air the first interview we had with Dean. And to tell you how kind of weird this is, we actually did this one back in February. But, you know, now as venues are starting to reschedule shows and look towards the future and perhaps opening up and all that good stuff, I thought, you know what, this is probably a good time to roll this one out, let everybody hear it, and uh, and just kind of get some take on the whole inside of the ticketing industry so as you start to get those uh those emails and stuff about rescheduled dates and what you want to do as far as tickets and things like that maybe this will give you a little bit of background about what you want to do and you can weigh that against your level of risk in uh in your ticket dollar so with that i'm going to turn it over to uh, richie and dean budnick so is that dean this is he hi dean it's richie here so um a little while back, I interviewed Josh and all the audio got screwed up completely. And I didn't want to ask Josh again the same questions. And um, so, like, you've been gracious enough to uh, to uh, to do it with me because I, I do a show called Focus on Metal. I've been doing it for about seven years. And you know what hard rock and metal fans are like when it comes to concerts and tickets. And they're a pretty loyal fan base. Sure. And I've had a lot of... Uh, a lot of people ask me, could I get someone who's either written a book on the ticketing industry or who works in the ticketing industry to come on and maybe explain some of the things involved in it? Because it's a pretty hot topic at the at, at the moment. It has been for the last few years, um, especially with all the the you know the never ending tours that seem to be going on now. So, you know, some of the questions I'm going to ask you they might be pretty simple for you but for me and a lot of the listeners that you know it might explain a lot of what goes on when it comes to ticketing no that's fine honestly like that's to me some of the most fun stuff like helping to inform people who might not be aware how some of this works it is something 
that occasionally I'll take for granted. Uh, and so I, whenever I do, if I do like a radio hit or something like this, I appreciate, I enjoy the opportunity to let people know exactly how the industry works. I think it's to their benefit. There are plenty of friends of mine who, you know, despite however many times I might sit with them at a bar trying to explain how this all works, still don't quite get it. And it's helpful to people to understand when they're making their decisions about how and when to try to get a ticket to a show. So, yeah, totally get it. Mm. So I know the book is is seven or eight years old. Um, have you and Josh talked about maybe doing an updated version of it? We do on occasion. Unfortunately, relative to that, we're both pretty busy. And there have been aspects of it. I mean, I personally think like almost every chapter in the book could be a book in its own right. And so there are a couple sections of the book that I've thought about expanding into a book on their own. But Josh and I do talk about, you know, continuing the narrative. I think we will. We don't have immediate plans for it. We're still friends. We still talk. So it wouldn't surprise me if that happens, but it's not something that's going to happen within the next, like a a revised edition won't come out within the next year or two. Hmm. Now, when you and Josh sat down to write the book, um, did you see a lot of books like yours out there that did the history of the ticketing industry? No, there was, there was nothing. I mean, really the reason that we wrote the book was to satisfy our own curiosity and interest about how the, the concert industry worked. I mean, essentially here's how it began in part is we wanted to answer a very simple question, which is, how do ticket prices get so high? I mean, it seems like a simple question. And as we started to break it down in a lot of respects, we came to recognize that there are a lot of elements that feed into that. So uh, it ended up taking us a long while and being rather detailed and and, and extensive. But that, that's in, in part uh, how it all how it all came together from the start. Mm. Now, you have a lot of people in the book from the industry. Were they okay when you approached them to be part of the book, or was some of them a little bit apprehensive about maybe what you were going to write about that? For want of a better term, you might be revealing the magician's secrets to people. Right, and you know what? There were a few people. I don't think there was anyone that I can recall who flat out turned us down. But what did happen is that there were a few individuals who wanted to speak either off the record or typically not, or just for background, you know, to give us a little insight, to tell us who we should talk to about something in particular. But I, frankly, I was, I was surprised that everyone did want to talk about it. And I, I do think that there were a lot of them who felt that, it was in everyone's interest if these aren't so secretive, if, if everyone understands the mechanics of how this comes together. Mm. What sort of reaction did you get in general from the business after the book came out? You know what? I almost exclusively positive. People, people thought we, we portrayed the series of events in a very fair, inequitable manner, and no one really seem to resent the fact that, you know, average everyday ticket buyers might have some information that otherwise previously wasn't available to them. I mean, the sense that I, that we received is that people were very, were very supportive and, and felt that it was accurate. So that, that, that part of it 
was pretty satisfying because whenever I've done a project, particularly like a, a book length project, and the people who you know I've interviewed or have been part of it, they feel like we fairly represented what they do. Ultimately, that's probably the most gratifying because those are the people that you want to think are going to be pleased or at least respectful of what it is you've done. Mm. What was now? What was the research like for doing this? Like, how long did it take? And was it difficult to get some information that you definitely wanted to include in the book? It took a while. I mean, it probably from start to finish might have been about two, two and a half years of work. I mean, part of it, frankly, was it took us a little while to get people interested in terms of a publisher who and an agent who believed that the story was even worth telling. And we came out with a proposal and a sample chapter. And the sample chapter that we had written was the sample chapter that talks about Grateful Dead ticketing, although it talks about a little bit more than that. And eventually we found people who saw the virtue in that. And then once we had that going and we signed our deal, it was probably another year and a half to pull it all together because, again, the book's really dense. There are a lot of interviews. And while the overarching subject is similar, you know, concert ticketing and the live concert environment and how all that comes together, the the individual chapters, you know, I, I really do think each of them could almost be a book on their own. So there was a lot. It was really a matter of just putting in a little bit of work every day you know, seven days a week for that, let's say, year and a half at that point to hmm. uh, to pull it all together. Yeah. Dean, how did you decide between you and Josh who wrote what in the book? That's a great, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I, I think we just divided it up based on interest uh, in, in certain respects. And then uh, there might have been one or two where we flipped a coin. And honestly, although... Josh and the way it worked is Josh and I each drafted a particular chapter. But if we were, if one of us was interviewing someone who might also appear in that chapter, we would have a communication so that we wouldn't hit up an individual twice. And in every case, we would take the other person's chapter and then work on that as well. Take a pass at it, do some revisions, add some thoughts, and then hand it back to them. I remember that uh, the chapter that we do that we wrote uh, involving Pearl Jam and Pearl Jam's attempt to go to Congress and fight back against Ticketmaster that we went back and forth on that one probably more so than any chapter because there were a lot of nuances and information that each of us wanted to pull out of it. And as you know, we would do individually add a little bit more that would lead the other individual to try to dig in and add some components as well. So it would go on for a while, but generally it was just interest. I mean, the way, if you really want to step back, the way the book came together is when I was a grad student writing my, my PhD in American history, uh, I was at Harvard University and in one of the Harvard libraries near the Carroll, where I did a lot of my work, there was a book on Charles Dickens. And it was a collection, actually, it was, it was a, a collection of letters from Charles Dickens. And somehow I happened upon it, and it was Charles Dickens writing, in part, about how the students at Harvard were a little frustrated with him in the middle of the 19th century 
because he had come by and was going to give a, a lecture tour. It was actually his last lecture tour. And a lot of the tickets were scalped. And a lot of the students blamed him and thought that he was scalping them himself. And I always thought, oh, that's fascinating. I'd just love to do a book on that and talk about, you know, the history of scalping over time and how all that's come about. And the other thing that really interested me out of that was sort of computerized ticketing and how the, you know, how that has evolved over time. So at the outset, I, I picked the topics, you know, I have a PhD in history that maybe were a little bit more historical. And, you know, Josh he was a journalist working full time as a journalist at the time we worked together. But I think maybe some of the more contemporary elements appeal to him. Although I also, you know, the stuff on uh, StubHub and the secondary market was something that all that interested me, I guess, coming out of that scalping idea. So to be honest with you, I know it's a really long-winded answer, but I, I think we just sort of naturally gravitated to things and we knew we had to split it up. And so that's really how it came about. Mm. Now, Dean, one of the things I noticed after reading the book was it really deals with the ticketing industry more or less in North America. And it doesn't really deal with the European ticketing market or, or the South American ticketing market or Asian. Um, was was that deliberate? Was that because like you you the book would have been two thousand pages long if you had it dealt with all of it? That is the answer. That is the answer. I mean, listen, uh, if I'm thinking the UK in particular, and we mentioned this a little bit in the book, is really complex. Um, let's just st- let's just stick with with the UK because you have multiple ticketing companies who have won the right to or who have the ability to sell tickets to a given show there aren't exclusive arrangements as they are here so it would have been too much we really did need to focus and let's be honest i mean josh and i were born and raised here and at the core of it i mean part of the story we wanted to tell really is the rise of Ticketmaster as a company. And in that regard, uh, eventually, after I appealed to him a number of times, Fred Rosen, who became the president and CEO in the early 80s, 1982, and really changed the game, once he came on and agreed to sit for some interviews, that, in certain respects, became a principal focus of the book and how the Ticketmaster model changed everything. And to try to go out and explore the other regions of the world uh, really would have added, I think, again, as you suggest, just the word count would have been, uh, would have been far greater. It would have been unmanageable. Mm. Now you start off the book with um, Irving Azoff, uh, who was the CEO at the time, I think in 2010. And there's a quote in the book that if you want ticket prices to go down, stop stealing music, which that's what he said at, at the at the meeting. Um, do you think that still applies now with streaming? Because less people seem to be stealing music now on str- instead of streaming it. Well, that, listen, I, I would say that certainly is true, but I also would point out that I think there's been a whole revolution in the business models of how artists generate income. I mean, they're certainly making less money from streaming than they were from, you know, old school records or cassettes or then CDs. So that at this point, I think uh, artists have come to, you know, musicians have come to accept the fact 
that they're not going to be able to generate the same profits that they once were from their recording. And as a result, they've really changed their focus into what they can do in the live setting. So at this point, it's almost too late in certain regards. There's not that same sort of pressure in terms of people, you know, simply poaching live, you know, music online, but because even sort of maybe in, in spite of the fact that they're streaming or in response to the fact that now they're streaming, artists are really focusing their energies and thinking about uh, how they're going to support themselves by performing live. Mm. Now, you also have a breakdown in the first chapter of the book on a ticket price for Lady Gaga. Um, I, I, before I get into that, because you, you list down all the different service charges, and I want to ask you about each individual one. W- what do you think in general is the biggest misconception out there about ticket prices? I think, well, maybe maybe first and foremost that well, boy, I, I, that's, I, you know, that's a hard question because people with different levels of knowledge maybe come at it a little bit differently. But I would say two things. First of all, at the core of everything, artists set the ticket price. I mean, that is the bottom line because artists, they want to get a guarantee for whatever show they're going to do, some set amount of money. And as a result, ticket prices are established based on that guarantee. So for better or worse, and listen, we all want to support the artists that we love. It's the artists who are doing it. The, I, but so if you step beyond that, though, maybe the second most, I think the second largest misconception is, for, I think for a long while at least, and maybe this has changed somewhat, is people don't understand how, don't understand Ticketmaster fees. And they believe that, you know, Ticketmaster is somehow ripping people off by having these, these service fees and they can't understand. It only costs a small amount of money for, um, to, to have this network and uh, it's ticket fees shouldn't be as high as they are. And it should be more uh, like a utility fee, which is a little bit lower, but ultimately listen, Ticketmaster is a company that's trying to generate profits for itself and for other individuals, including the, the promoter and the venue owner, when they're not the same at times, the artist, shares in a little bit of that as well so that there's a lot that goes into it and a lot of people who are who are sharing the financial benefit of that and i think people maybe don't entirely understand that as well mm. so you you give an example of lady gaga a 20 dollar lawn ticket that's the price that's on the actual physical ticket um how much of that does lady gaga's organization get in general would it be 80 percent 100 percent in this day and age, for an artist like Lady Gaga, in terms of the face, va- the face value of a ticket price, I would say roughly closer to 90. Although there are artists who can sometimes push and get a little bit more, there are artists who it might be a little bit less, closer to, let's say, 85 or 80 uh, for a developing artist. Or for someone who's playing just in clubs, it can be in a little bit less than that. But for a top-tier artist, you're talking about 90 or, again, can be, even, can be even greater 95. We talk in the book about how Jimmy Buffett would receive more than 100% of the ticket price. And the idea behind that is, you know, Buffett's management understood that 
the venues were benefiting because fans of Jimmy Buffett would go and they drink so much beer and consume so much at the shows that in reality, when Jimmy Buffett came to town, the revenues would rise for all these venues. And so they felt comfortable asking for more than 100 mm. percent. If you think about it, the idea of getting more than 100 percent of the ticket price is sort of insane. But <laughs> I think he made a compelled right. But I think he made a compelling case. Yeah. So, I mean, roughly speaking, that, that's how that'll work. Now, if Lady Gaga gets 90, who gets the other 10? The promoter. The promoter. So whomever put on the show, um, whether it could be usually like Lady Gaga, that's going to be a major promoter. But uh, when an artist comes through, the other 10 then is, is really essentially it's the cost of putting on the show and paying for all the people who are working at the venue and then ideally uh, getting a little, keeping a little bit of money in the end. I mean, you know, in the day when you were thinking, and this is a little, is much less true now than it was, let's say in the 1970s or 1980s. But back then, you know, there, there was a lot of risk involved by individual promoters, you know, who would put their, put themselves on the line, would commit to guaranteeing a certain amount of money for an artist. And the opportunity for profit was actually pretty limited because so much of, of those funds would go to the artist. And when, for some reason, a show would tank, it's the promoter, ultimately, who would the individual promoters who would take a hit. I mean, in this day and age, that still does happen, particularly when you're talking about bands that are playing clubs. But most of the major tours in this day and age are mounted by you know large production companies, in particular, Live Nation in AEG, so, you know, they can amortize those costs. You know, if, if, let's say if a given artist doesn't do well at one show, maybe she'll do better at the next. And so across a tour, everything will be fine. And it's not a lone individual just gambling that everything will turn out okay in the end. But again, the, the other, the other, whatever the other percentage is of the face value, that goes to the people who worked on the show. Mm. Now, Dean, you list four separate charges on the Lady Gaga example. I'm going to ask you about each individual one and what exactly they mean. So the, the first one you, you have is a facility charge. Can you explain what that is? Well, so, uh, I mean, essentially, a facility charge is money that in theory just goes directly to the venue. Um, and that's simply pure profit for the venue itself, for the arena, for the club that's putting on, that's putting on the show. They get to see that directly. And again, that's, um, you know, that, that becomes part of how they support themselves and, and, uh, and are able to put on, uh, to put on concerts. Mm. And the, the next one you have is a convenience charge. Right. Uh, you know, it's called that way. Well, yeah, in this day and age, a lot of times these all come, you know, are, are sort of folded together. But essentially, a convenience charge really is that's the money that goes essentially to Ticketmaster because Ticketmaster is the company, uh, you know, or or they're, you know, or one of or one of Ticketmaster's um, competitors like the AEG has its own has its own ticketing company. But that's the money that go that goes to the the, the ticketing the ticketing service that uh, that makes it convenient for you to buy a ticket. Uh, increasingly these days on your phone rather than a computer, but prior to that, at outlets. 
you know, wherever they would be dispersed around uh, dispersed around the country, or the hmm. globe, frankly. Hmm. That next one is the order processing fee. I mean, right. Order processing fee, that's just another that's just another term for the same thing. I mean, it's broken down. So it seems like I think uh, to certain people that it might be something different, but it's the same idea. Just so uh, that money goes to um, goes to the ticketing company. I mean, the ticketing companies wanted to make it look like there were a lot of different elements broken down, so it didn't seem like there was just like one large fee. But you know, for all intents and purposes, those could be rolled together. Mm. And the last one then is the ticket fast delivery charge. Right. So that um, has essentially disappeared. For a while, concert goers were paying for the right to print tickets at home. And that's sort of fallen by the wayside in particular. And there would be a fee that was associated with that. But um, concert goers, fans were really, really frustrated with that one in particular. Because how much does it cost? Why should you be charged just to print it? Just to print it at home. And so that was eliminated. Plus, honestly, ticketing companies don't want you to print tickets at home anymore. They want you just to scan your phone because they want to have that kind of information about all of the concert goers. So they want to just, they, they, they're, they're perfectly willing to, um, to have no fees uh, associated with you physically carrying your ticket with you at all times via whatever your mobile device is. Mm. Now, a lot of people, they'll buy like two tickets or four tickets all in one transaction, and yet they charge you for the fees per ticket. That, that, that's one thing that I could never really understand. Like, well, what's the reasoning behind that? Cause I, I mean, it's, listen, it's pure profit, right? That's all it comes down to. There is no reasoning other than they're trying to, you know, they're, they're trying to generate profit. I, I'm with you. I, it seems a little bit absurd. You could cut those. If one were really trying to create a service that benefited the consumer uh, and that had some sort of rational approach to it, yes, that would make sense. But, you know, again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, profit. It, it's a profit source for these companies. Mm. And as a result, that's, that's the way it's broken down or, or not broken down, I guess, in, in, in that case. Yeah. One of the other questions you asked in the book was, why does the service fee vary with the price of the ticket? Because to me, if I buy a ticket for 50 or for 500, the transaction is exactly the same. But the person paying 500 is paying more of a fee than, than the person paying 50. Right. I mean, that's, that was the question we had going into it. And the answer, of course, as I certainly you, you can imagine by now, is that it's, it, it, the person that's paying five hundred uh, won't blink at a larger service fee because if they can afford the five hundred, they won't care that they're paying a little bit more. And so that was a determination that was made initially. Ticketmaster was the company that did that. Uh, Fred Rosen, the CEO, decided that he wanted to implement that particular strategy. And you know, time has proven that that he's right about that. You don't really find a lot of people. Uh, in this day and age, who are even if they do complain about it, uh, where that a sense of outrage really extends to the point where some industry-wide change has uh, has come to pass. People who are paying that kind of money, they can afford to pay a little bit more, and so they do. You know, I, I can understand why people think that's un that's unfair, 
Uh, I guess I would step back and say, but again, uh, the goal here is to make a profit. It's important to remember too that the clients of let's say companies like Ticketmaster, their clients are not the American public or the global public, or their their clients are not concert goers. Their clients are the people who hire them to use the service, so, and that is concert promoters and music venues, concert venues. So those are the individuals that ultimately ticket that you know, the ticketing companies uh, want to appease and want to address their concerns. That's not to say, by the way, I mean, one thing that has changed, I want to be real clear about this since our book came out, is the ticketing companies are a little bit, I wouldn't even say, actually, let me say, they're not even a little bit. They're more responsive to the needs of concert goers. That's not to say that people you know, aren't still going to call Ticketmaster Ticketmastered and aren't going to be frustrated when they don't get the tickets they want or ticket prices are a little high. But during that time, I think in part because social media has made things a little more transparent and because, you know, they ultimately want to make it a positive experience, you know, within boundaries for, for concert goers, things have changed. But ultimately, you know, the, 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 the ticket buying public, there are not the clients for these services. The, the clients are the venues and promoters. And ultimately, those are the primary areas of concern for these ticketing companies. Yeah, and Dean, now, now Kid Rock a few years ago, he did a tour over here, and I believe he set a base price that was pretty low, and it was one price, I, I believe, for the whole venue. Um, look at, listening to what you're just saying, that everything is based on a percentage, um, are you surprised he was able to pull that off? Because one, the promoter at Goford, and two, Ticketmaster went along with it as well, because a percentage of a lower figure is still a lower figure, if you know what I mean. Like if the ticket prices were a lot higher, they'd get a higher percentage and a, a lot more money. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, I think at times if you have rela- like you know, artists like Kid Rock, uh, who's you know has a relationship, it, it, he is a long-term touring entity who is going to be continuing to tour for months and years to come. I think that the promoters want to maintain a relationship with him. And so if he wants to try something, I think they were willing to try that with him. He's not quite doing that as much anymore. And to some degree, particularly with the secondary market nowadays, you know, shows sell out and then people are reselling tickets for a a much higher amount. That can be frustrating forgiven artists. But listen, I mean, every, ultimately, I think everybody wants to try to work and make the artist happy. And when the artists do dig in and say, listen, we're going to do this or we're not going to tour, promoters are, are, are willing, you know, in, in, a, at a given, in a given situation to say, okay, if this is your demand, we want to continue to work with you. We want to maintain that relationship and we will let you do so. I, I think a lot of people thought that, that he was sort of, you know, he was certainly, I don't want to say undercutting himself, but he certainly could have received more money if that was his goal. But but the problem, that can cause a problem, right? Bruce Springsteen, there were a couple tours early on in which he really made the commitment to keeping his tickets low. I, I, not early on, like, you know, within the past 10 years, there was a point where he wanted to keep his tickets to $75, which at the time, was far less than what the market would support, what people were willing to pay 
And as a result, a lot of people found it frustrating that because those tickets were so were priced so low that everyone was buying them. Uh, scalpers, you know, uh, and individuals who aren't professional scalpers, but are just trying to make a little bit of extra money. And as a result of that, you know, it became harder for people to get tickets to the shows, even though his intentions were certainly pure. He wanted to make it fair for everyone. But in keeping it so low, he really provided incentive for people who wanted to resell those tickets to to do so. And that made things a little bit complicated. I mean, there, there just are so many nuances that are associated with um, selling tickets, setting prices, trying to identify what's what's best for the public, that the whole thing just is, is really pretty complicated. Mm. Now, another question you ask in the book is, are musicians scalping the best seats? And would the answer to that be something that Metallica were caught doing at the end of 2019, where they were getting tickets and putting them on the secondary market? before they even went on sale to the public. Yeah, you know, listen, I mean, what I would say is I think there's been a there's been a push for artists to do that going back to the late 1960s and 70s. I think there are always individuals who have come to them with, you know, people with a briefcase full of cash and say, "Listen, if you uh, if you want, we can offer this to you. We'll take some of the seats and you'll make a great deal of money." There are stories of a number of artists who were tempted by that and some of whom actually went forward and did that. Um, but yes, I, in terms of Metallica, again, everything changed once StubHub launched and artists could really see with some clarity, in particular their managers, right? Because I don't know if Metallica is paying that. I don't, I don't know how to what extent Lars is really paying attention so that maybe Lars is because he's. He, I think he's maybe he's a little business minded, but uh, like James, I don't know if he's really looking into that. But certainly, you know, management is people associated with the band is with the band is, and I think they recognize that tickets to their shows are being resold on the secondary market for an amount that's much higher than what they're charging, and a lot of people think that's unfair associated with the band, uh, you know, that band or other bands. That it's crazy, like. It's the, the band that's generating all the interest. It's the band that's doing all the work. And what can we do about it to make sure that we, the group, you know, is being paid a fair amount when these tickets ultimately are sold or then resold to the public? And I, I've spoken with any number of artist managers who experience just real frustration with that. Uh, but at some point, it's sort of out of your hands, and it's hard to know again because of all the complexities. Like, what's the fairest way to to deal with all this? I, I'm not saying that you know an artist sort of reselling their tickets in the way that Metallica did without transparency is is a fair way. But I think if there were some transparency, I suspect that that, that certain fans would understand what they're trying to do. It's you know. Uh, but it's frustrating when that happens, I think, in, in a very underhanded way, as, as as occurred in that instance. Yeah, now one of the things you finish off in the book, you talk about dynamic pricing. And I want to bring all that back to the VIP packages, because one of the things you say is that the most desirable ticket is undervalued and that the worst seats are overvalued. Now, let's take the undervalued seats. The most desirable seats are at the front of the venue. Right. More, more, more often than not, they're the first three or four rows. And 
you're trying to say in the book that people think they're undervalued, but the way I look at that now is let's take the Motley Crue Poison uh, Def Leppard tour. You can't get a, a seat in the first three or four rows unless you you buy the seat and the VIP package that goes along with it. And some of the VIP packages are five, six, seven grand. So I have a hard time seeing that as being undervalued if you're paying that amount of money for a front row seat. Like I can't go to a venue and say, right, I want the seat in the front row. And if it's $175, I want to get the $175 seat. I have to pay for the VIP package on top of that as well. So to me, they're actually overvalued. Well, what I would say to that is that's, that's a product of the fact that the book came out when it did. Because since the book came out, uh, artists, managers, promoters have responded. It continued to respond to this particular issue. And the result is just what you described. I mean, that is a way to try to deal with the fact that they're a scalper, to try to generate for the artist some of that money that otherwise would be going to scalper. So I agree with you in this, in this particular case. But what I would say, that's something that, that, that's a, you know, that's a conclusion that artists have reached since the book, since the book came out. So you and I are in agreement in, in, in for that one particular point. I would say the book is a little, especially relative to that, to that tour. I think the book, the book is wrong. That's, that's, you know, and at, at, at this moment in time, that's artists responding to the fact that they believe that those first few rows are, uh, are undervalued. And clearly in that case, they're not. Mm. I think there's a trend now as well, Dean, that people won't buy the tickets when they originally come out, that they'll wait and wait and wait and wait. And they'll, they'll see if the price comes down or they'll, the venue will have to dump tickets to get people in there. Um, that's got to cause uh, a lot of frustration for the promoter um, and and the and the band's management as well because they have no idea coming up close to the, the day of the, the concert how many people are going to show. That can be true. I mean, again, all of that is is sort of complex because ultimately, you know, does it really matter on some level to an artist? Uh, specifically, just sticking with the artist when the show sells out, as long as the show sells out. And the example that I would, would, would mention is the Grateful Dead. And the Grateful Dead never really cared. They knew they had a sense their shows eventually would sell out. But they didn't care if it sold out the day tickets went on sale. To them, it made no difference whatsoever. Uh, they they want to have a full house. They want to, you know, have all the fans there. They want to be able to certainly, you know, receive the, the profits that, that come with that. But it didn't matter when that took place. So as a result, they would sell half the tickets to their shows um, through their own mail order service. And it didn't matter if that happened, you know, if if then when tickets were on sale, it took a little bit of time. The other example more recently is Taylor Swift. You know, they did uh, for the Taylor Swift tour. They didn't care. uh, Management didn't care that the tickets rolled out were sold a little bit more slowly uh, and that those were. offered to the public in waves because again they didn't need they didn't feel the need to sell out the first day the first minute it's a different era than it was let's say the 80s into the 90s in particular 
where sometimes, too, the advantage of selling out a, a, a show right away in the moment is that generates interest, that generates publicity for the tour in general. But in this day and age, when you can reach your fans directly through social media, I, I don't know if that gets as, I don't think that gets, has the same impact as it once did. And the artists on some level too, they really don't care. They're going to get, they're going to get a guarantee. You know, they're going to get their guarantee, um, whatever that fee might be for the tour. So I think they're less concerned than the promoters though, as you mentioned, I, I, I think at times the promoters might feel some anxiety about that and, and, and some concern over whether a show might sell as well as it could. But again, I, I think everyone, particularly in this day and age in which there are a lot of a whole range of statistics that become available and all these, you know, all of these, um, reporting suites and tools that are made available through Ticketmaster to promoters who feel pretty, who, you know, before they commit to a given tour, have some sense of how it's all going to come together. That doesn't mean that some tours won't stiff, um, some tours stiff, but uh, ultimately I do think they feel a little bit better that they have some sense of where all this is headed. Hmm. Now the paperless ticketing, um, it's a, it's nearly everywhere now on, one of the heavy metal bands that tried it in the UK and they, they said it more or less worked was Iron Maiden that you had to have ID with you, the credit card with you, the whole lot. So they had, if they could match up the name on the ticket to, to the individual. Um, where do you stand with that? Like, do you think that w one works and B that the industry will accept it the way it is now? Here's the thing. I do think, that works. The slight issue that I have with that is it privileges certain individuals. For instance, people who have credit cards. I, I know that a lot of people have credit cards. Some people don't have credit cards. They're younger. They can't afford them. They have, they've had some problems. They don't want to have credit cards. So some of the issue, again, some of my concerns there is it's just simply not fair to everyone. Now, again, I understand that most people have that. It, it also legitimately can make things difficult for people who can't go to a show and it's not that they want to resell their tickets and they want to make a great deal of money. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of tours go on sale pretty far in advance. And so it's hard to know whether I'm going to be available now in January, 2020 for a concert that might not take place until August. Yeah. So I want to buy the tickets because I know they're going to sell out, but it, you know, then I want to also be able to resell them if only for face value. And so that sort of complicates things a little bit. But above and beyond that, I do think that individuals, you know, the, the industry sees the value of paperless ticketing. But I think what they really are looking for nowadays and what the push really is, not even I think, it, it, this is, you know, the, the various participants have said this, they're, they're, they're trying to push toward mobile ticketing. They want people to use their phones. Uh, as their tickets and be able to, you know, just have a QR code that they can then scan because the, the individuals who are um, selling tickets, who are promoting tickets, and even, you know, the bands themselves, they want to have that particular information so that they can then connect with the people who are entering the shows so that then they can, you know, market to them a little bit later. You know, hmm. Maybe you want to buy some merch 
or maybe you want to know about other shows at this venue. It just it helps them. The more the you know the promoters and the artists, the more information they have available to them. In theory, at least, um, this makes their this makes economic sense to them, and theoretically helps them down the road when they're trying to sell the next show, even not by that same artist. Or if you are that artist. Again, if you're selling merch or maybe, you know, your next album, you want to give people an opportunity to buy that, perhaps, you know, for a little bit of a discount if you already can have that direct communication. So all of that, I think that's the uh, I, I think that paperless philosophically is something that everyone's still on board with. I just think we're seeing an increased push to having that be a, the, the form of that be uh, fans going getting into concerts by uh by scanning their phones yeah just final question before i leave you go dean um when you look at music in general especially at the arena level um all the acts like the paul mccartney springsteen rolling stones all these guys are all in their 70s all the big bands big big bands and there's no real arena level acts coming up behind them other than maybe Taylor Swift or Lady Gaga. There's not as many of them. At the arena level, when all those acts go and there's not there's not the crop coming underneath them to fill all those spaces, how do you think the ticketing industry is going to react to that? Well, here's the thing. So I, I've had conversations about this very question with uh, individuals who work for, um, you know, the, globally, the two leading companies, right? Live Nation and AEG. And what people from both those companies would say is while what you just described might be true and unquestionably is true, that if you were to look around the globe, you'd see that there are a lot of individuals more than ever who are really, uh, who are able to fill theaters and are able to fill venues of a capacity of, let's say, three to maybe 5,000. And that over time, these individuals, these artists are going to be the ones who are going to make that transition into arenas. We just don't necessarily see it now. I mean, it is true, unquestionably, that the industry continues to sell more tickets year after year. It's just that increasingly they're, they're, they're selling those tickets to uh, shows that aren't in arenas, that tended to be in, tend to be in venues that are slightly smaller and they feel still very confident that those next generation of artists are, are are developing right now and will ultimately be able to make that transition. I can't see personally, Dean, bands coming up now that get to the arena level staying there because of the way people are now. They're more fickle. Uh, their attention span is a lot less. So I can't see an arena act now that goes from a club to an arena staying there for like 10, 15, 20, 25 years, like the, like the likes of Springsteen and Rolling Stones or 40 years. I just can't see Taylor Swift doing that in 15, 20 years. Well, I, Taylor Swift, not to delve too much into Taylor Swift, I, I actually can, can imagine that because you know, she has so many fans who start out young and then will continue to be with her over the course of the, her career. But, but beyond that, sort of stepping away from it, what I would ask you is, What's your favorite size venue in which you'd like to see an artist? Like, when you want to connect with an artist, where do you want to see them? And what size venue do you prefer? Not an arena, unless I have an extortionate amount of money to get close to them. Right. So, what, I, I'm, I'm absolutely with you, right? I'd rather see a venue. I'd rather see my favorite artist in a club or a theater. So, to me, 
I don't worry about that. <laughs> you know, I'm happy to have the opportunity to see an artist in a venue where I can have that connection, where I have the experience that I think is going to be more satisfying. So I don't worry about that. You know, I feel like arenas weren't really made. They weren't designed for the most part for music anyhow. And so if, if you know, the next generation, if we're all going to see, uh, if we're all going to see music in, in somewhat smaller environments, that's awesome. Because, you know, that, that, that's, that's a much, that, that makes for much better shows, in my opinion. I'd always rather see an artist, frankly, in, in a show that's GA, right? That's mm-hmm. GA up front, rather than seating, that, rather than a seated venue. And I think sound in, in, in arenas, even though it's gotten better over the years, it's still not the same. So, you know, I, I definitely think it's altogether fine. I'd, I'd, I'd rather see an artist play three shows at a, you know, at a, at a three to 5,000 capacity place in a given city than go to an arena, like especially like a smaller arena, which is something of a comp. It, it, it's a much better experience for everyone. And I think if you ask a lot of the artists, they would agree with that as well. But they, they really prefer those shows. So if, if we don't have, and I think we still will have some, arena acts particularly pop acts as they develop over time but if we have less of them i don't think the big promoters care that much and i think the fans in particular would would be happier as well because again you're having that more that more intimate direct experience Mm. dean there's just one more thing came to mind there um the hologram tours you see a lot more of them now and i'm i'm talking in particular like with heavy metal what we deal with ronnie james dio going out with a band with a hologram of him in it have you spoken to people in the ticketing industry how they're going to actually ticket that and price it because it listen it's not the real thing everybody knows that um but if you have an act that's at, at the arena level Surely that act can't go out with a hologram at the arena level, or, or can it? Like, have you spoken to people about that? Yeah, I mean, listen, there was just an article that came out in the New York Times about that, and so I was talking to some friends of mine. My friend, uh, actually Peter Shapiro, who owns a few venues, I've worked on a number of things with him over the past events with him over the past twenty years. He and I were just talking about this yesterday, in fact, and that's a tricky. It's tricky. I mean, I, I listen, I. If you want my personal aesthetic choice, like I, I don't know that that just there's something about that that just doesn't seem right to me hmm. about that. Uh, it, it just doesn't feel right. I mean, it, it, no matter. I think at times maybe some individuals have the best intention in mind, and it's not just a money grab, but it still sort of feels that way. I, I don't know. But above and beyond that, I mean, if I'm seeing an actual live band in which all of the performers are on a stage. I, I think, you know, I, I can understand why I might go into an arena and see something like that, because at least I, I can appreciate what's going on. If, if I'm going to see, you know, go off and, and see some hologram at the very least, I think it's more suited for a smaller venue where I can have a glimpse of the, of the hologram and try to figure out, get, get a sense of what it actually feels like and looks like and the like, but I don't know. I, I just, I, I can't, I understand that there's a lot of uh, tech, a lot of time and money and technology that's being invested in all of this. And as you mentioned too, 
a lot of the older arena acts, you know, those artists are, are you know, they're, 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 pass, they're passing on or retiring and the like. And so there is a push to try to keep artists into the, you know, in the arena setting. But I just don't think that works. I, I personally really don't. And, but, but who knows? Maybe, maybe, maybe the technology will become so good that, that it'll be, that it'll be accepted. The other problem I would say with that, by the way, is that if, you know, a, a lot of times if you go see an artist in a bigger venue, you know, you have those IMAX where you can see like video screens hmm. on either side of the stage. I don't think you can do that quite the same with a, uh, with a hologram. I don't think it, it, it's processed exactly the same way. It makes that a little bit more complicated, but ultimately, I, I don't know. I, I mean, the reason we wrote this book about ticketing is because we're live music fans. Right, we love live music. That, that that that's really important to us. I was again. I was just talking to my friend Peter, who is a concert promoter, but he's an independent promoter, and he was telling me just how much to him, how, how live music is so is important to him. That and it's, he'll continue. Even you know he he owns a number of venues, so he can go out uh, essentially every night of the week and see see an inspiring show, and he he gets a lot out of that. And he connects with the music, and that's important. And that's really what inspired the book. Even though you know it, it's a the book is a business book, the reason we, you know we wrote it and think about the business of live entertainment of concerts is because we love going to concerts. And I'm in the interest of wanting to support the artists that I love and other good live music that my friends enjoy, and keeping all that going. And you know, I don't know, holograms don't really to me that's more like a, a museum novelty that doesn't feel the same to me as going out and supporting artists who are trying to make something new and innovative and real in the moment and su supporting themselves by doing that. And then I want to support them so I can have the experiences that I will with, with them and their sound and their music and their, their evolution over time and, I, you know, I, I, even though I can I can respect some of what's done on the, te on the technological side, I just don't I, I just don't feel that that's something I want to see, particularly in an arena. But you know, it remains to be seen. Hmm. Well, my take on that, Dean, and a lot of people go they, they'll go after me a little bit and they'll say, "Listen, you're not a fan of the guy," and I'm like, well, "I'm I'm just looking at this in general." If you if you have a hologram, I don't see a difference between that and someone playing to a backing tape. It's just they're both the same thing. They're both tapes. The band has to play off of that, so there's no spontaneity. They're not all on the stage at the same time like like they used to be. Now, if you if you're a kid and you've never seen the guy, and this is the only opportunity you have to go and see him, like Dio, I I get that. But to me, I want to see a full live show not the four musicians playing with the hologram of Ronnie James Dio. Because to me, Ronnie is just, it's a tape. It is a tape. You listen, I, I frankly, I'm with you. I, what will be interesting at one point down the road is, you know, when you get to see when uh, these algorithms are built, Dio might, well, isn't going to be the best example for this, but uh, in order uh, that that will the, the, the technology will actually allow for uh, these holograms to have some element of improvisation in terms of what they do, and it, which you can imagine how that how that could work, particularly if you're thinking of a like a guitar hero uh, who might have 
who might have passed if, if that really comes out. Uh, and um, I mean, you could think of, let's say Hendrix, hypothetically, um, how, you know, then uh, a Hendrix hologram uh, has the ability to do some element of improvisation, then maybe there's something to that. But ultimately, I'm with you. Like, you know, go back and watch a great, I'd rather see an amazing um, recorded performance, a video in, in, in the proper setting, whether it be like IMAX, or um, with a you know something in old and archival performance with amazing sound. Maybe I even have that in my house. That if I have a you know a screen where I can watch that myself in my in my basement. Like to me, that's more vivid and real than like you say uh, playing to a tape or playing to a recording and trying to present that to to and to an audience. I mean, listen, I understand people have to you know I, I the great the, my heroes. Uh, who continue to be my heroes, you know, if, if um, member, one member of a band has passed, I can understand the impulse to want to support the other members and to get to see, you know, some uh, a look back at an artist who isn't with us anymore. But in terms of why I go to shows and what inspires me, that, that's, yeah, that doesn't quite cut it. Hmm. Well, Dean, you've given me more than enough time. You've answered all my questions, so I really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks very much for talking to me. It's been a pleasure. And the book is fantastic. Sure thing. And you know, the one thing, we didn't talk about that. Maybe we'll, maybe you and I could talk about this some other time down the road. Is you know we didn't talk about ticket scalp. We didn't really talk about the secondary market. No, which is probably you know an hour conversation mm-hmm. in its own right. So at some point down the road, you want to revisit that? I'm I'm certainly game. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to, Dean. All right. All right. Take, take care. care. Bye. Bye. There you go. Everything you ever wanted to know about the major ticketing markets and probably even more. And, uh, you know, big thanks to Dean for coming on and spending you know, like almost an hour with Richie, just really delving into a lot of that stuff and really cooperative, really great guy. If you haven't heard uh, the special one we did during our uh, special editions we were putting out while everybody was quarantined, you can uh, go back to the episodes page and find that one. That was the Concert Killer episode that we numbered 456SE. And, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show when I talked about the level of risk, definitely, you know, I'm getting emails from venues saying, hey, this show has been rescheduled. It's, you know, it's even next summer or whatever it is. And you usually have one of three options you can do, right? You can do the straight up, give me my money back. You can get the, hey, give me a credit for uh, tickets in the future or, hey, I'm holding on to the tickets. And I hopefully with some of the stuff you heard Dean talk about, you kind of understand where all of those different choices come from. And obviously the best choice for your concert venues is that you opt to either take a credit or keep the tickets that you have and try to go to the rescheduled show. And the uh, the venue killing one is to say, no, I, I want to refund it. Now that you know how the money gets pooled and all that after talking to Dean, then you understand where some of these venues, especially the smaller ones, could go under if everybody just decides they want to get their money back. So again, evaluate your level of risk when you're talking about these rescheduled dates and see what you think you can and can't afford. You know, could you afford to just lose all that money if, for some reason? And, uh, you know, try to do the right thing for yourself and also try to do the right thing for our 
slowly, or I guess these days, quickly shrinking uh, venue industry that it's going out there. I will say that for myself, every one of them that I've been getting, I have been opting to just hold on to my tickets, cross my fingers that the rescheduled dates are going to happen, especially stuff like Primal Fear, Symphony X. Come on, keep that one in mind. Uh, I definitely am hoping that that thing will happen again in May of next year. But anyways, for this week... That's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So, for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.